Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Hannah McMullen and I'm a third year medical student at Columbia University in New York. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Emil Bacha from Columbia University, NYP, and Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital about the application of the Ozaki procedure in pediatric patients. Dr. Bacha is the Chief of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, as well as Director of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery at New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, Columbia University. Welcome, Dr. Bacha, and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, Hannah. For listeners who might not be familiar, can you briefly discuss the purpose of the Ozaki procedure and outline the basic steps of the operation? Uh, Yes, so the Ozaki procedure is named after Professor Ozaki, who's a Japanese uh, Japanese, uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, It's basically a replacement of all the, the three cusps that comprise the aortic valve, a replacement of all three cusps with uh, pericardium, with pericardial patches. And the, the thing that defines the Ozaki procedure is that the patches are pre-cut following a specific, uh, following specific uh, templates that Dr. Professor Ozaki had developed following years of research uh, into the geometry of the aortic root. And so you follow a very specific uh, you follow very specific steps uh, whereby you measure uh, the three sinuses of Valsalva sizes using those sizers, the Ozaki sizers. You then uh, delineate and cut the pericardial patches and then you suture them in, each one, one after another, the three of them, following a very specific sequence of events, of uh, sequence of uh, suturing step, uh, steps, let's say. And that's really the Ozaki procedure. And, and the key here is to follow specifically um, the, the almost like a, in a cookbook manner the, the steps that are delineated. Excellent. How have you adapted this technique for use in pediatric patients? Yeah, so, so we, Professor Ozaki came, visited us uh, almost 10 years ago here, and we were very exi- excited to to see uh, the development of this procedure. It, he had used it in, in hundreds of adult patients initially. And as it so often occurs, we in pediatric cardiac surgery, we had, uh, we had uh, adapted adult procedures to be used in pediatric cardiac surgery in kids. Okay. So the challenges we have in, in, in kids, in pediatric cardiac surgery is that kids grow. So if you do a procedure when they're two years old, when they're 12 years old, it's going to be a different situation that would have grown, and we, we don't have valves, particularly with valve procedures, we do not have valves that will grow with the child. So the, the, that's a big challenge that's still unresolved. Now, the Ozaki, if you think about it, the way it's, it's done, it's three uh, patches of pericardium, typically of native pericardium. Now, pericardium implanted in the heart somewhere does not grow. It's not something that will grow with you, unfortunately. 
And so the, the, the question is, what happens if you do an Ozaki procedure in a five-year-old and that five-year-old becomes 15? Will the patches have adapted somehow? Maybe the, the tissue around the aortic root will have adapted so that the, the child does not, did not develop aortic insufficiency or aortic stenosis. That, re, that question really is, is somewhat unknown, although we have evidence so far that the procedure is, at least in the short to midterm, is effective. So now let's discuss the indications for the Ozaki procedure, starting with a simple case. So we'll start with a 12-year-old boy who presents with severe aortic insufficiency. What tests would you order for evaluation of his aortic valve disease? And then based on the findings, what are the different possible management strategies? So, uh, so for a 12-year-old boy who presents with severe aortic insufficiency, uh, which is a fairly common scenario, well, obviously, we would start with an echocardiogram as a, as a first test. That's sort of the most common non-invasive test that kids get with, when they present congenital heart disease. So the echo will show us how much AI there is, aortic insufficiency, will show us the, uh, the, so the degree of AI, the mechanism of AI, whether it's a single leaflet problem, the basic anatomy of the valve. Is it a bicuspid aortic valve? Is it a tricuspid aortic valve? Is it thick? Is it thin? Is it ruptured? Is there uh, infection, endocarditis? Is it rheumatic fever? All of these things can be at least, um, you know, you're gonna have a good idea about that from the echo. Then you can measure the aortic annulus and that will help as well. And uh, you can measure the aortic root size, ascending aortic size, uh, and the echo will also show you the function of the pulmonary valve in case you're planning to do a ROS, then you would wanna make sure that the pulmonary valve is, is working fine. So all these findings you can, you're gonna get. And of course, the ventricular function is a very important piece of, of information that you need to have. Now, uh, that's in a 12-year-old boy, that might be the only test uh, you get. Uh, one more uh, element is the coronary anatomy that you also will get from the echocardiogram. So once you have these uh, pieces and you have somebody with severe aortic insufficiency, maybe it's starting to become symptomatic, maybe the LV is dilating a lot, maybe the function is starting to get down. Uh, I might potentially stop there in terms of testing and not require any more testing, but I am a little bit old-fashioned, and some other um, surgeons might want to get an MRI, for example, to look at ventricular function in particular and ventricular volumes uh, and the degree of regurgitation that you get. Uh, that's not wrong, uh, definitely not, but I might just do an echo only. And then what would lead you to perform the Ozaki procedure rather than a Ross procedure? So the, the discuss, this is a very good and very important question because aortic valve disease in, in teenagers in particular is fairly common. And, and so it's, a, it's one of the longest, you know, I always sit down with, with parents and families before surgery, before any surgery. But when I sit down and discuss aortic valve surgery, isolated aortic valve surgery in teenagers, that's probably the longest discussions I have because there are a lot of options and none of the options are clear cut. You need this, you have this, you get this. Sure. So I'm gonna, just gonna go quickly through the option that you have for a 12 year old boy with aortic insufficiency. Sure. So the first option is an aortic valve repair. Uh, and the repair might, might entail suturing and, and resurfacing of the aortic valve, um, opening it up or expanding, ex, um, uh, enhancing the, the cusp surface with a patch. It's different from the Ozaki, right? So if you do a cusp extension, 
it means that you're keeping the native cusp and you're putting a cusp to to make it longer and higher, as opposed to the Ozaki, where you remove the native aortic valve and you replace everything with pericardium. Different concept. So aortic valve repair is number one. We have, uh, we used to do a fair amount of aortic valve repairs pre-Ozaki, and I have to say, since the Ozaki has come along, I have done hardly any aortic valve repairs, only when it's a very straightforward aortic valve repair, because we know that the more complex aortic valve repairs just don't last. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you have to uh, uh, do a lot of procedures, a lot of surgical technical steps to create a functioning aortic valve that's competent, you know that's a valve repair that's not going to last probably. Mm -hmm. So unless it's a very simple valve repair with only simple maneuvers, we don't really do aortic valve repairs of the classic type anymore. But that's option number one. Option number two would be uh, a bioprosthetic valve so that's a pericardial valve that's off the shelf that's you know companies um, produce these valves uh, in a 12 year old uh, boy or girl uh, that valve will not last it will degenerate and calcify very quickly it might last uh, the patient two or three years only mm -hmm. so it's not a very good solution so i would not really entertain that the third option would be a mechanical valve in a 12 year old uh, boy uh, you presumably, with severe AI, you presumably have a fairly large aortic annulus, and presumably you can implant a large size mechanical valve. Now that's an interesting option, and it's not a bad option. The benefit of it is that you potentially have one surgery and never have surgery again, because mm -hmm. you replace it, the mechanical valve, in theory, would last for decades and decades. The downside is you have to be on Coumadin, on a, on a blood thinner, and uh, for a 12-year-old boy, it's a problem because you, if that person, that boy is athletic and wants to go jumping and playing contact sports and stuff, sure. it's a problem. For female, it's a problem with, with pregnancies. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of mechanical valves, but, but it's not wrong. And some surgeons are, are more keen on doing mechanical. It's also the simplest procedure to do. The third option, the fourth option, since I've mentioned three, so the fourth option would be um, the uh, Rouse procedure. And the Rouse procedure, in brief, is basically using the patient's pulmonary valve to replace the patient's aortic valve, uh, implanting it in that position, in the aortic position, and then using a homograft, which is a cadaver cryopreserved uh, graft, pulmonary valve, mm -hmm to replace the patient's native pulmonary valve. So that's the ROS procedure in a nutshell. Uh, it works great. Uh, it's a favorite of mine personally and of uh, other pediatric cardiac surgeons because it is the one procedure that gives you growth. So if you do a ROS procedure in a two-year-old, you basically, and you come back, at, you see this patient when he's 15, that uh, aortic root where you put an implanted ROS will have grown with the patient, so it's a beautiful thing to see. It works very, very well. Uh, but in a 12-year-old, uh, you know, typically that patient has grown and it's, there's not much growth to be had. And so, uh, anyways, the ROS procedure has a lot of advantages. Of, for example, excellent hemodynamic profile. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you look at the physiology of the aortic root and the flow profile uh, through that valve, it's the best that there is. It's better than any mechanical or bioprosthetic or valve repair 
or Ozaki. Wow. So it's abs- and that's been studied extensively uh, in athletes. And so if somebody, for example, I've had athletes that come for a Ross specifically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, high-level marathon runners. I had a you know na- national um, person who was on a national level in a sport uh, who came and specifically wanted the Ross procedure because he had studied it because he knew exactly physiologically speaking that is the best possible result you're going to get. The fifth option is the Ozaki, and in a setting uh, where you have AI and a large aortic annulus, I think that's a good option for a 12-year-old and, and to do the, uh, the Ozaki. So those are the five options that you have in a, in a 12-year-old patient with severe aortic insufficiency. Excellent. Thank you so much. So what would make a, a patient not a candidate for the Izaki procedure, and which of those alternative operations would you consider in that case? Right. So the way we handle patients here, at least in, in this unit, is that the more you lean towards, the more the native valve disease is stenosis, mm-hmm. the more likely we are to go towards a ROS. The more the patient uh, native valve problem is insufficiency with an, a large aortic annulus, the more we lean towards an Ozaki. The reason for that is that um, the problem, uh, the, the downside of the ROS, besides using the pulmonary valve and creating potentially two valve disease, is that there is such a thing as autograft dilation. You can have long-term problems with uh, uh, repeat aortic insufficiency, but. We know that if you impl- if you do a ROS in a patient with a fairly narrow aortic annulus and most and uh, with the majority of the disease being stenosis, those patients do the best with the ROS and they do really really well and they do not dilate. You don't have to to do a, what's called a reinforced ROS and they do really well. If you on the other hand do a ROS in an AI patient with an aortic annulus that's large, potentially larger than the pulmonary annulus, those are the patients that you have to do a plication of the annulus for a reinforcement of the ROS. And, and I feel that at, at that point, when you it's a little bit like the early valve repair. The more technical add, add-ons you do, the more it's likely to potentially fail long-term. So in contrast, if you have AI with a large aortic annulus, you have a lot of space in the aortic root, and you can put nice three nice large leaflets, pericardial leaflets, you know, uh, with the Ozaki technique, and that works very well usually. Sure. How would your uh, management decision change if the patient had uh, mixed aortic stenosis and aortic insufficiency? Yeah. So that's that's a great question. So now I was mentioning if you are on the one end of the spectrum aortic stenosis, you're more likely to do a ROS. At least we are at Columbia. Now that's not necessarily, but I think I think that's the right approach. If you're towards the other end of the spectrum, mostly AI, then you're more likely to do an Ozaki. If you're in the middle and you can, and there are a lot of patients who have mixed disease, some of them have mostly mostly AI with a little bit of AS, and we can have mostly AS with a little bit of AI, but we look at the aortic annulus in particular and, and, and go by that. So if the aortic annulus is normal to small or maybe a little bit enlarged, we, we might go towards ROS, if the aortic annulus is large, then we would be thinking, okay, if we do a ROS, we're gonna have to do an, an aortic uh, um, reinforcement, aortic annular reinforcing uh, procedure, and we might go with an Ozaki at that point. 
the other uh, the other issues to consider is the function of the pooling valve. Mm-hmm. If, for example, your pooling valve is not working well, then a ROS is not going to be a good option. Sure. So that's one thing. Another option to consider is the LV function. Mm-hmm. You know, there are cases where you would want to do a quicker rather than a longer procedure. The Ozaki is a little it's a little bit faster, not that much, but a little bit faster than a ROS procedure. So if you're in a situation where, for example, you have a bad bad left ventricular function. I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe I don't know that that's really an argument that I would use, but I mean, it's something to consider at least that maybe the Ozaki is better than the Ross uh, at that point in time if you're really so worried about it that you have to shorten your clamp time uh, in that particular patient. So you mentioned the timing. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the technical complexity of the two procedures in comparison to each other? Yeah, the technical complexity uh, is... It's a little bit comparing apples and oranges. I would say probably the the ROS is the more complicated procedure. Okay. The ROS, um, I would say, it, it, it is very much dependent on a surgeon having experience with the ROS versus the Ozaki, which is a little bit easier to pick up even for an inexperienced surgeon. Okay. So I think it's fair to say that the ROS is technically more complex than the, than the Ozaki. Can you describe how a patient that you decide to uh, do an Ozaki procedure on would typically present to you, and what makes them an ideal candidate for this procedure? Yeah, I mean, so uh, pretty much what I had mentioned before, which is AI is more to, I would lean towards an Ozaki. Okay. A large aortic annulus, I would lean towards an Ozaki versus uh, Ross. The Ross and Ozaki are really, for us, the two mainstay operations that we use for aortic valve disease. Again, I want to say that uh, that you might go to some centers where a mechanical valve is mostly used for Mm. most aortic valve, isolated aortic valve procedures. We don't do that here, but that's completely, you know, again, it's an accepted way to to treat aortic valve disease without without, uh, any doubt. the one other thing to mention, since TAVR is so popular these days, is that neither the Ozaki nor the Ross will allow for a TAVR in the future. Okay. So the Ozaki, because the leaflets are very high, and as you, if you're gonna go in with a stent and a, put in a TAVR, it's gonna occlude the coronaries, and you're not gonna, that's not possible. And with the Ross, same thing. The typically the mechanism of failure is a dilation of the autograft. And so you cannot, uh, the uh, TAVR is also not indicated. So neither one of these two, uh, that's also not possible for the mechanical valve. So it leaves you with the bioprosthetic valve in terms of doing a TAVR. Okay. Uh, but that's really not recommended in young kids because how many TAVRs can you do? And then eventually you're still gonna need surgery. And so that's really not recommended. That's an important point that I had not thought about. So thank you. Um, let's talk more about the technical steps of the procedure. So can you describe your operative approach and especially the important anatomical landmarks that you're looking for during the operation? During the Ozaki? Yes. Yeah. So I think the, the, when you're approaching a patient, operating a patient and planning to do an Ozaki, you have to, let's say you, you've you've arrested the heart, you've done your aortic incision, you've exposed the aortic root, you've exposed the aortic valve. The first thing to do is to uh, make sure the corner, to look for the coronaries and know where they are. I mean, most of the time they will be in their usual positions, but what I tell uh, residents all the time is congenital patients can have coronaries 
that are completely in different places that you might expect. So you always have to expect something different. You always have to make your your aerotonomy high so that you don't injure the coronaries. So number one is look for the coronaries and make and know where they are. Number two, look at the valve. Uh, and you're gonna have to you're gonna be resecting that valve, but you need to first assess the valve. Is it a bicuspid? Is it a tricuspid? How many sinuses are you going to be left with and how many commissures are you going to be left with? So you, resect, you then resect the valve, uh, pretty much flush with the aortic wall, and then you, again you look back into the aortic root, uh, maybe with an aortic, with an Ozaki template in your hand, and you kind of determine whether you're going to have three equal size uh, sinuses to deal with. Uh, that's ideal. So if you have three roughly equal size sinuses with three commissures that you mark with a pen, then you, you then measure the, the sinus, you cut your, use the template, you cut your, your pericardium, and you're off to the races, you're doing well. Uh, if on the other hand, uh, you have atypical anatomy, meaning you have, for example, two large sinuses and one small, or you have a commissure that uh, ends up being uh, clo very close to a coronary, for example. That's not something, because you don't want to be suturing close to a coronary. Mm -hmm. uh, well, then you have to basically recreate three sinuses, and you may then switch, rotate your uh, your view uh, to put the commissures separate from the, you know, away from the coronary ostia, and, and try to create uh, three equal-sized commissures uh, and, and sinuses uh, even though the patient didn't present with the three, so you're basically ma making it happen uh, and ignoring the patient's anatomy, which may be not favorable. Sure. So that's how you would do it. Okay. And oh, then so, uh, sorry, you were talking about, okay. so the technical aspects, because I <laughs> the most important <laughs> thing, once you've then measured your, your patches and you're cut away, cut the correct size patch, okay. then you have to suture them in. And you suture them in, uh, typically using 4-0 polypropylene uh, suture, uh, following the suture technique of Professor Ozaki, which is, which is weird because for somebody, you know, somebody like me who's been doing this a long time, mm -hmm. for somebody to come and tell me this is how you suture Apache, and I'm like, <laughs> well, look, I've done this a long, long enough time. I don't need you to tell me how to suture Apache. I do this every day. But the fact of the matter is you actually have to follow the way the stitches are placed and the way he sometimes he skips a little bit or sometimes a little bit this way or that way it is actually it's well thought through and so I do follow the, the steps the technical <laughs> steps cook, cookbook uh, wise okay. that's very funny yes it is truly a technique exactly right that's right <laughs> Uh, can you briefly describe the different approaches to leaflet sizing? You mentioned the template. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so leaflet sizing, I, I think we aim to have three equal size leaflets. Uh, you know, so sometimes you end up with a 27 and a, and a 25 and a 23. We prefer to then make them all 325, for example. Okay. So we try to modify where the leaflets are going to end up so that we have three equal size leaflets. Okay. That's sort of the way we do it here. Um, <clears throat> the, you you want to uh, oversize rather than undersize, okay. and you want to really take your time measuring with the sizers, uh, the, the, 
from Kamishur to Kamishur, making sure you're, you're happy with what, you're, what, what you've chosen. Okay. And then building off of that, creation of the Kamishurs is considered to be another um, important operative step. Why would you say that this step is crucial? And can you describe your operative approach? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reason the Kamishurs are crucial is because the failure of the operation occurs at the Kamishur. So that's the most, uh, that's the most, uh, th that's the point of maximal tension. Mm -hmm. um, and in the days when we were doing more aortic valve repairs and we would do cusp enhancement and things like that, uh, it, the failures would always come at the Kami shores. Either mm -hmm. the stitches would hiss or the patch would tear at that level. Because again, the, t the point of most, of maximal tension is at the Kami shore. And so how you stitch the Kami shore and putting Putting the, the leaflets with the with the um, uh, with the flaps uh, on the on the aortic wall, how you fix that and uh, is again following Ozaki's way of doing <laughs> is very important and it's important that you pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah. And so, uh, what treatment technique do you prefer for those pericardial uh, materials that you're using to create these? Um, leaflets and what other materials can be used if the autologous pericardium is not available. So, ideally, we want to use na we want to use native pericardium, right? So that's the patient's own pericardium. Um, we want to uh, make sure it's well cleaned of any you know fat fatty uh, debris, and we uh, put it in in 0.625% glutaraldehyde for two minutes only. That's okay. what we do here. Other places use it for longer. I prefer not to put it too long and for too long glutaraldehyde because it cross-links to the collagen, makes it stiffer, and I want the patch to, to stay you know nice and soft. So two minutes in glutaraldehyde. Uh, if you don't have pericardium, which happens frequently, if you if you're for example a redo operation, you don't have pericardium left, then uh, you have to go to a commercial patch, and there are uh, several commercial patches. What we use here is something called PhotoFix, um, and that's off the shelf, and, and it, you know, and, it, and we've had good results with it. So this is what we use. Other places use other patches, but that's what we use here. So you talked about this briefly with uh, changing the sizes of the leaflets. Can you describe the approach if the patient has a unicuspid aortic valve? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when, in a unicuspid aortic valve, you actually, with a unicuspid aortic valve, you may have two commissural posts, mm -hmm. or you may have three, actually, or one. I mean, it's, it's, it's very variable. So okay. the fact that you have a unicuspid aortic valve does not mean that your commissures you may have a rough, what's called a raffet, which is a sort of a halfway formed commissure mm -hmm. that's not very well delineated. Uh, typically, when you remove the valve, the unicuspid valve, you end up with a clearer understanding of the basic anatomy of the root, and then, uh, but but you often have to do what what we discussed earlier, which is just simply create out of thin air your new commissure location using the using the the. Uh, the templates and the uh, uh, Ozaki templates. Uh, so that's really the unicuspid aortic valve per se. Once it's resected, that's it. It you, <laughs> you don't like. There's no some. There's n you don't do a technical modification just because it's a unicuspid aortic valve. Okay. Basically, what you really want to do 
is try to recreate three equal size sinuses. That's really the principle. Doesn't matter what valve you're dealing with, native valve you're dealing with. You start from the annulus. That's right, yeah. Okay, so then moving on to uh, complications that you're concerned about during the operation mm -hmm. and steps that you might actively take to avoid them and your management strategy if they arise. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to go through the usual potential complications of open heart surgery, bleeding, infection, things that those are all things that are very low, extremely unlikely to occur in this. But mm -hmm. specifically complications for the Ozaki would be the main one is uh, coronary osteal occlusion from the flaps, from the newly created mm. uh, cusps. And I think it's not a very well understood phenomenon. Um, I mean, we know what happens, well, I should say, it, it's well understood that what happens, meaning the newly created cusp is occluding the one or the other corner, the left or the right, typically the left coronary. We had one case uh, here of that occurred. We had to go back and replace mm -hmm. the valve sort of urgently. The patient did fine eventually. Uh, but it is not clear what you have to modify during performance of an Ozaki procedure to avoid that problem. Compounding the issue here is that the left main orifice may be higher or lower in different patients. And so you have to take that into account. So I would say it's that is a bad complication that occurs and you wanna be on the lookout for it. So I really, for example, if you have any LV function changes post-op, uh, during post-op TEE, that's not normal because you, unless your clamp time was, if your clamp time was in a regular range, then you shouldn't have really LV dysfunction. And so if you have LV dysfunction, then you should be thinking that the coronary may be affected in some way, even though you may not have EKG changes. Uh, even though you may also have flow on TEE into the left coronary, all of these things don't exclude necessarily uh, a problem with sort of a flap occluding the left main. So that's, that's really the main one that you wanna try to avoid. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so moving on from the operative details, uh, let's talk about the post-operative care for these patients. So what is the typical post-operative recovery course like for a patient undergoing the Ozaki procedure and what care do you recommend? What parameters are you most concerned with monitoring? Uh, well, the typical course would be for the patient to be extubated in the, either in the operating room or the day of surgery okay. or at the latest the next morning because typically those are otherwise healthy patients. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and then uh, to leave the ICU within a day okay. to the floor, recover on the floor for a few days, and then go home within four or five days after the surgery. That's mm -hmm. sort of the typical mm -hmm. course. Uh, most patients, uh, all patients we will put on aspirin. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do Coumadin. Some centers will do Coumadin for a month or two after mm -hmm. Ozaki. We don't really do that because there's some risk to Coumadin, so we go with aspirin alone. The primary parameter you want to monitor after Ozaki is blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure the patient's not hypertensive because that puts a lot of pressure and stress on the valve, on the, you know, which is supposed to be healing. So you want to control the blood pressure and make sure that uh, the blood pressure is, is actually not high. Mm -hmm. uh, and that goes, you know, in the ICU you can control that with, with drips, with you know, things like Esmolol or Nicardipine or Nipride. Um, and um, 
and later on you can go on an ACE inhibitor and or a beta blocker. Uh, typically the blood pressure is once the initial post-op period has one or two days, usually it's not a problem that the patient is rarely hypertensive, but it's the first day or two that sometimes some patients are hypertensive and you want to make sure that you control that. Okay. That's the main thing. Mm-hmm. And then when will you see these patients for follow-up and what findings are concerning to you at this time? Yeah. Well, the follow-up typically once, if let's say you left within a few days mm-hmm. here, you would follow 10 days after the procedure, 10 to 14 days after the procedure with your uh, pediatric cardiologist, uh, which would be somebody in-house that we work with that's at Columbia. And the reason that is, uh, we see, we, our team sees the patients for wound problems, if there are any, and general problems. But the the reason to go to see a pediatric cardiologist is because you need a good echo at that point in time. And so you get a good echo, and if the valve is working well and the patient is feeling okay, you know, typically two weeks after surgery, the patient is not com- completely fully recovered. Uh, and and so you make sure everything's okay. You make sure there's no pericardial effusion as a post-pericardiotomy syndrome. If your aortic valve is working okay, then you're pretty much good to go and you can say come back in six weeks for another echo and another checkup again with the pediatric cardiologist um, so that the valve function is really the, the one thing you want to look at for sure okay and how long do you follow these patients that have undergone the procedure at Columbia you, you know I mean these patients should be followed pretty much lifelong. I mean, it doesn't mean that they have to be followed every month, but you know, so let's say you've seen somebody at two weeks post-op, then six weeks, but then three months, then six months, and then you can see them once or twice a year, and that's enough. If the valve function is good, then once or twice a year is enough. Uh, So the problem with the Ozaki in general, from a more global perspective, is that when you think about it, you are putting in a patch in the bloodstream of the patient. And so the question is, what happens to that patch in a growing child? We know that when you use patches to reconstruct vessels, the patches tend to shrink, calcify, fibrose. And so uh, we don't really know yet what's going to happen at 10 years, 15 years post-op with these patients. Uh, The adult experience, which is why we have adapted that experience from the from the uh, adult side, but the adult experience, and particularly Ozaki's adult experience, has been excellent, long-term. And that's why we have been willing to adapt, uh, adapt that procedure to, to kids, um, hoping that we would mimic the adult experience as well. Mm-hmm. What indications have you seen for re-intervention for a patient? So, you know, we have not we, I mean, we've had an acute reintervention on the one patient I mentioned that had left coronary occlusion mm-hmm. uh, that was very evident from the get-go, and we, we jumped on this and, and replaced the valve. Um, and we've had one patient that was very unusual situation after a switch procedure later. Without, so that wasn't really and it was a problem with the Ozaki. It was a different type of problem. But... For those who came in, like you know, the example you gave, 12-year-old boy AI, and sort of more pure Ozaki operations, uh, we have not yet had to reoperate on anybody. Okay. So that's obviously great. We're happy about that, um, and we hope it continues. Okay. 
Sure. So then what do you see as the future direction of this procedure? Are there any promising new advancements that you know about? Another great question. So I think the technical aspects are worked out pretty well, how to implant the patches, but the Achilles heel is the patch itself. What I was just mentioning, the fact that patches, whether it's native pericardium or other patches, they all degenerate, calcify, stiffen, etc. So, <clears throat> so the advances will be in patch material. We have uh, Dr. Kalfa in our unit who's working intensely on creating new patches and new biomaterial to be used in, in children, and that's the kind of direction we think uh, it's going to have to go because once we can develop a patch that remains malleable and flexible and maybe even grow with the child then we could we would then the ROS procedure would probably fall off the wayside and we would be doing Ozaki procedures exclusively. Thank you so much for speaking with us today Dr. Bacha. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us about the Ozaki procedure or the field of pediatric cardiac surgery in general? Well, the field of pediatric cardiac surgery in general is the most exciting thing you can do in medicine and surgery, but that's uh, a different topic. Um, no, I, I mean, it is it is one of the new exciting things that have happened in the field of pediatric cardiac surgery, the Ozaki procedure. So I, I'm glad you picked that subject, uh, and uh, I'm really hopeful for the future.